Um, so thank Anthony for inviting me today um, and for that introduction to metamodernism, which I, I'm not going to use the word metamodernism, as you can see I can't say it. Um, uh, what I'm, what I'm going to try and do today, in fact I'll put up my kind of epigraph, I've got three epigraphs, first from Charles Dickens, I've got them written down so I can... I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. And I just want us to keep these three in our minds as I'm, as I'm going. Um, second one, rather chilling, uh, Donald Trump, uh, another way of thinking about my title. And now, I can't do Trump's act voice. Um, and now, we're looking only to the future. So that needs inauguration speech. Um, and the third one is from Theresa May. Uh, her embrace, her, her cold embrace of Brexit. If you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. Um, so if we if we have those three messages uh, in mind, what I'm going to try and do today, um, very much in the spirit of Anthony's introduction, uh, to try and work out how the legacies of modernism and of postmodernism join in a couple of examples of contemporary writing which clearly trying in some sense to receive a legacy from modernism whilst also trying to think beyond postmodernism. And I'll just put this on the table as a way of thinking whether metamodernism is an emerging vocabulary that might try and help us to think about that connection in the context that these epigraphs stage, something about the relationship between our contemporary understanding of the history of literary form how it relates to our contemporary predicament to the to political histories that are gathering around us at this rather <coughs> transitional moment in the history of sovereignty. That's what I'm going to try and do. Um, and what I want to start by doing is to suggest that we can see across the range of contemporary fiction being written, I'm going to talk about British fiction today, but it's a global phenomenon, uh, a fascination with what we might think of as the time to come and with the means by which a strange and alien maturity might be captured within the snares of literary expression. This absorption in and with the shape and texture of the future, I think, is determined by two factors that I'll try and alongside one another. That is a, a shifting relationship to the history of literary form and the contemporary experience of political transformation. that are deeply and uh, problematically entangled another. Political uh, transition itself produces a fixation on futurity, kind of fascistic fixation perhaps, in one of the most chilling moments in Donald Trump's multiply chilling inauguration speech from 2017. He declares, as we've just said, that now we are looking only to the future. <coughs> Both Trumpism and Brexit, Trump's ugly European twin, in signalling a quite profound political transformation point towards a revolutionary future, one which is not aligned or clearly aligned to whatever consensuses that were built in the West in the decades after the Second World War. The new millennium has projected us into uncharted waters, and our current relation with the history of literary form is a reflection in part of this disorientation. Across the range of contemporary imaginative practices, one can see the re-emergence of modernist modes, as these are filtered through postmodern forms, as well as resurgent forms of realism, autobiography, metafiction, memoir, and so on. 
At a moment when the novel is obsessed with its own future, when our most prominent writers are obsessing on the death of the novel, as ever, um, uh, and of the migration of novel energies into other narrative and technological forms, it sounds a bit wrong, um, we find that the novel is involved in a reanimation of the formal histories which have brought us to the present that we share now. The encounter with the literary and political future is both sustained by and deferred by uh, a, rev a rev revisionary enactment of a history of literary form. Now, this is a very broad kind of phenomenon, but uh, I'm going to try and glimpse the nature of this fascination with surety, um, tending to perhaps surprising symmetry that is discernible between the postmillennial work of the two authors I'm going to talk about today. Um, and I'm, I hope I'm not going to hear groans, but maybe I will. Uh, First one, Ian McEwan. Growing, there's always a growing. And second one, Ali Smith. Uh, a symmetry that arises from a relationship that I think we can see in both of their writings. The commingled spirits of Charles Dickens and of James Joyce. Um, this is an odd kind of pairing between McEwan and Smith. I don't, they seem very different, but I'm, just bear with me um, while I try and work out Dickens, Joyce, Smith, McEwan um, in the context of modernism, postmodernism, maturity. So it's in his 2014 work, The Children Act. How many people over here have read The Children Act? So I'll try and kind of give us a, a sense of how it works. Um, it's in that novel that McEwan most fully extends this dialogue with Dickensian realism on the one hand and Joycean modernism on the other as a means of imagining the future. The future as manifest in this novel in the figure of the child. And the child, you know, I don't know whether people read Ali Smith's discussion of the future in The Guardian this weekend, but she's, uh, she's fascinated with the figure of the child and is interested in tracing this figure in the contemporary. So the opening of McEwan's novel announces this debt to Dickens. Um, it starts the first sentence, London, short sentence, uh, Trinity term, one week old, implacable June weather, Fiona May, a high court judge, at home on Sunday evening, supine on a chaise long. See, in that opening we can hear the opening of Dickens' 1853 novel, Bleak House. London, Michaelmas term, lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn, Lincoln's Inn Hall, implacable November weather. So in sharing this opening with Bleak House, the, Chil the Children Act announces a kinship with the earlier novel, a, kin a kinship which deepens, in a sense, as the novel progresses. Dickens' great novel stands in part, part as a rebuke to the law, which becomes barbarous when it's ensnared in its own laborious processes and vested interests, rather than serving the interests of the citizens it's supposedly designed to protect. But Dickens' novel Bleak House is also a rich meditation on the relationship between law and literary fiction, as both discursive forms work at the junction between naked being in the world and that being as it's given spatial and temporal extension, as it's brought forth into the sovereignty of subjecthood as opposed to the nudity of Agamben's bare life. The famous figure, if people have read that novel, The Bleak House, the famous figure of Joe the Crossing Sweeper uh, is the closest Dickens comes, I think, to a representation of what we might think of as an Agambenian bare life of a being that doesn't have the sovereignty granted either by law or by narrative. Joe, as he puts it repeatedly in the novel, uh, and I can't do Joe's accent any more than Trump's, uh, don't, don't, know, don't know nothing, he says. 
and it's and is entirely dead to the call of written language, to the discursive signs in which we encode our being. His existence, the narrator writes, is wonderfully strange, um, a bit, an existence which appears human, but without language, cannot, or without written language, cannot partake of human time or human space. How strange, the narrator thinks, to be like Joe, to shuffle through the streets, unfamiliar with the shapes, and in utter darkness as to the meaning of those symbols so abundant over the shops and at the corners of the streets and on the doors and in the window. To see people read and to see people write and to see the postman deliver letters and not to have the least idea of all that language, to be to every scrap of it stone, blind and dumb. Dickens' project in Bleak House is to imagine a literary means of granting discursive power to the kind of naked being that he discovers in the figure of Joe, without that power becoming corrupted by legal and political institutions which serve their own interests and the common good. Standing as a blank opposite to this picture of Joe, the crossing sweeper, is the despicable lawyer Voles, who people will remember if they've read the novel. Um, I'm, I'm sure that it's not a coincidence that Voles is nearly an anagram of gloves. Voles, every time you see him, is pulling on his gloves, and uh, the narrator says at one point that he's all glove with no hand. And, uh, yeah, that's the, there's something kind of totally dead about Voles. Um, and he's a man so versed in the cruel and empty letter of the law that he has almost no body, no glove, no hands, and certainly no literary soul. He has a surplus of literary language to counterbalance Joe's utter lack. And between these opposites in Bleak House is the, the narrator, partly the narrator, Esther Summerson, whose gentle narrative becoming is, an, is a Dickensian experiment in the process by which a well-crafted, well-balanced realism <coughs> can found being in language without such foundation becoming a servitude or a fixity. This is language as the gift of self-determination rather than language as the imposition of a tyrannical law. So the Children Act, which is about uh, a judge who has to make decisions about uh, children, whether, whether the law needs to step in and act in the children's interest and how that conflicts with the children, with the child's own sovereignty, the child's own right determination. Uh, the Children Act opens with its obeisance to Dickens, in part because it too is interested in the relationship between law and fiction, which McEwen recently suggested are rooted in the same ground. And in particular, it's interested in the question of how legal or literary forms might grant us the freedom to enter into a future that is at once legally or discursively controlled and at the same time open to our own creative cities and caprices. The Children Act of 1989, after which McEwan's novel is named, decrees that when a court determines any question with respect to the upbringing of a child, the child's welfare shall be the court's paramount consideration. And the Children Act turns around the difficulties and contradictions that this legislation sets in train. As the judge, the kind of main, main character in the novel, Fiona May, puts it uh, in the quote that's there, the duty of the court was to enable the children to come to adulthood and make their own decisions about the sort of life they wanted to lead. The law protects the child and looks after his or her interests in such a way that maximises his or her capacity to reach an age when they can think for themselves. The cases that McEwan's novel is interested in 
are those in which the rights of the child to self-determination are in conflict with their own well-being, which the law has to set one freedom against another in order to shape the future the child will enter. In such cases, Fiona's judgment always, and there are a few of them, is that the law should step in and shape the child's future in accordance with its, with the law's own definition of well-being, even if that means prioritising a stronger more viable subject over a weaker one in the case of conjoined twins that we see earlier in the world, or prioritising the decision-making power of the adult over that of the child. In the novel Central Case, and which is the unfolding of the plot, that's a Jehovah's Witness named Adam who's dying. He's, he's 17, so he's not quite old enough to make his own decisions. He's dying of leukaemia. Religion tells him that he can't accept a blood transfusion. Does the law step in and insist that he has a blood transfusion in order to save his life? Um, uh, so in the, in the novel Central Case, this involves the legal instruction that Adam's leukemia should be treated by blood transfusion, despite the fact that it's against his religious principles to, as he puts it, allow blood products to enter his body. As Adam's father puts it, Adam's decision to refuse the transfusion is driven by his sense that his biological being is a discreet and sacred gift from God. You have to understand, the father says, that blood is the essence of what's human, it's the soul, it's life itself. Adam is nearly old enough to act as an adult, so the law in requiring him to accept treatment is imposing its own view of the boundaries of the sovereign being, that is, its porous, and thus can accept blood from another body without losing its uniqueness over those held by Adam himself. Even though Fiona can see that Adam is lucid and able to think for himself, in fact he's kind of gifted and intelligent in a human-like way, she cannot accept that his interests are served by allowing him to take a sovereign decision that will end his life. His welfare, Fiona decrees, invoking the Children Act of 1989, is better served by his love of poetry, by his newly found passion for the violin, by the exercise of his lively intelligence, and by the expressions of a playful, affectionate nature, and by all of life and love that lie ahead of him. That's what she writes in her judgment. So in making this judgment, Fiona acts both as an agent of the law and as a kind of author and narrator of the life that lies ahead for Adam. In saving his life and in uh, demanding that he lives, she obviously sort of narrates him into being. As Bleak House offers a narrative framework within which characters can come to self-determined being, um, Bleak House ends with Esther Summerson moving into her own version of Bleak House, which is a kind of miniature version of the one that she grew up in, which seems kind of sign in some way. Um, uh, so as Bleak House offers a narrative framework with which uh, the characters become to being, Fiona's judgment offers Adam a kind of benign gift of realism, a benign narrative of life, love and poetry. This granting of a narrative shape to being in time is what realism gives us. But what's most striking about the Children Act and what makes it, makes it such a compelling reflection on the history of form, the narrative implicit in Fiona's judgment the narrative that has its genesis in the Dickensian novel, is slowly and in a, in a very sort of forensic way dismantled as the novel moves through its tightly controlled phases. Fiona's judgment comes at the end of the act three of this five-act drama. It marks the climax of a certain realist logic in which a past generation is able to set the terms in which a future generation comes to language being. From this point on, after Fiona's judgment, halfway through, 
From this point on, another logic starts to insinuate itself in the narrative, and with it a completely different model of futurity. And as this other logic begins to surface, so the influence of Dickens begins to give way gradually and subtly to the influence of Joyce, and the legacies of realism give way to the legacies of modernism. Uh, Fiona's judgment grants Adam a new lease of life and of health. His body starts to regenerate itself. Um, Fiona is sitting, uh, having a cup of tea with him, and admires the worlds of his healthy, young, dark brown hair, which is sort of sprouting from his head as he recovered. And Adam writes to Fiona in the letter that he's recovering his vitality, getting stronger all the time. And there's a strong sense that Fiona has granted him this strength and this health. But the legal and fictional processes by which one generation makes the space, and in this case even the body, in which the next might, next might flourish, are disturbed or undermined in McEwan's novel by a certain refusal or reordering of narrative sequence. Adam, armed with his new strength, does not want to look forwards for life and love, but rather looks backwards to Fiona with whom he's fallen in love. And Fiona, suffering from childlessness and lovelessness, feels herself drawn to the child who she's created, not as a member of a future generation, which she has set free, but as the extension of her own present, as someone who can give her the love that she half unconsciously craved. It's a critical moment in the second half of the novel as one temporal logic begins to give way to another. This meeting between generations takes the form of a kiss, nearly a chaste kiss, but also more than a mother might give her grown-up son. Over in two seconds, perhaps three, time enough to feel in the softness of his lips that overlay their suppleness all the years, all the life that separated her from him. From this point on, the question that drives McEwan's novel is how we might capture the years and the life, in that phrase, that separate one generation from the next. Years and life that don't obey the narrative trajectory of a realist pop plot, Lie, but that lie in the interstices, a kind of lived time that resists our narrative powers, defies our models of responsibility, prudence, sequence. It does not have a language with which to express itself in its own terms. And as this question comes to the fore, the model on which the narrative rests is no longer Bleak House, but Joyce's The Dead, a text which begins to make itself felt in the Children Act, as anyone who has read it will have noticed with a vibrant and lyrical intensity. The dead, of course, is itself concerned above all with the turning of generations, with the ways in which the dead impose themselves on the living through the perpetuation of models of community sustained by national myth. Gabriel Conroy's after-dinner speech, which I'm sure we will all remember, at his aunt's Christmas party in Dublin, sets a nostalgic lament for a passing Dublin community against an acknowledgement that there is a coming international generation which disrupts such forms of belonging. Gabriel's aunts, he says, are the last bastions of a, quote, tradition of genuine, warm-hearted, courteous Irish hospitality. And, quote, all the time he's saying this, of course, we know he has utmost contempt for his aunt. Um, a tradition which is threatened by a new generation, he's saying, which is growing up in our midst, a, genuine, a, gen a generation actuated by new ideas and new principles. The Irish tradition, which lends the story a rich, festive warmth, is sustained by the folk music that runs through the story. 
by the strains of the Lasse Wachrin that Gabriel finds his wife listening to with a strange, rapt intensity at the turn of a staircase. The new generation takes its cue from what Gabriel calls the, quote, thought-tormented music of Robert Browning's difficult verse, a prosodic accompaniment to what Gabriel calls a sceptical and thought-tormented age. These oppositions in the dead, Ireland versus Europe, tradition versus modernity, are radically upset at the close of the story as Gabriel misreads entirely the intense, distracted mood that the lass of Ochrim has kindled in his wife, Greta. He sees uh, that evening as his... He, he thinks perhaps me and Greta are going to have sex tonight, so he's getting quite excited about it. And he sees that there was, quote, colour on her cheeks and that her eyes were shining, and a sudden tide of joy went leaping out of his heart as the memory of their shared life together, captured in the strains of that distant folk music, is mingled with a surge of present desire for her that evening. He thinks to himself that perhaps her thoughts had been running with his, that she had felt the impetuous desire that was in him, and then the yielding mood come on her. The music, he thinks, has produced in both of them a moment of shared belonging, nourished by a collective national mythology. But, as we all know, as the story comes to a softly crushing end, Greta reveals she is moved by the music to recall not the life she shares with Gabriel, but the life that she has not lived with a delicate boy named Michael Fury, a figure from her past who died from, for his love. The last of Ocrim has conjured not community, but a great distance between Greta and Gabriel, between the dead and the living, the past and the future, a distance that yields the story's closing image, an image which has come for most readers since to mark the threshold between a model of realism and one of modernism. Gabriel stands at the window, reflecting on the snow falling all over, all over Ireland, falling on every, dark, every part of that dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly on the bog of Allen, and further westward, softly falling into the dark mutinous waves. The imagined prospect of such cold community leads him to a gesture of national belonging, which is incredibly difficult to read. A commitment to that Irish tradition that he uh, insincerely celebrated at his aunt's party. The time had come, he thinks, in one of the more lines in All of Joy, the time had come to set out on his journey westward. But whatever evocation of a shared time and space this homeward, backward journey is, it's of a piece too, with the difficult futurism of the thought-tormented age. In the very moment that he travels imaginatively westward, he heads to, towards an ecstatic dismantling of being that he finds in the broken distance that opens between himself and his wife, a distance which no music can cross, no myth can overcome. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling through the universe, faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living. <coughs> Dead. To understand the modernism that Joyce invents after Dubliners, to understand how Ulysses produces forms which sustain the mythological and historical past while opening themselves also to a form of dismantled being, a being that belongs to a future that hasn't already been made, it's necessary to approach this moment at the end of the dead, a moment when a lyrical epiphany brings a commitment to a shared past into difficult contact, swooning surrender to the groundlessness of being. It's this moment, hard to go from reading that incredible delicacy in the dead, the children that the two tonally feel, 
I'm on distant from one another, but anyway, it's this moment, this turning to that is a turning away that animates McEwan's novel as he approaches the space that opens between Fiona and Adam, a space between generations that cannot come under the jurisdiction of the law. As McEwan's novel draws to a close, the elements of the dead which have been gathering under the skin of the narrative throughout its first half <coughs> rise to the surface, producing a strangely intense moment of double voicing. Fiona learns during a public recital of Bach and of a Yeats ballad that she'd earlier sung with Adam, that Adam's leukaemia had returned, that having reached his majority, he was able to refuse treatment, and that as a result, he has died. As Greta says of her young lover in the dead, I think he died for me, so Fiona discovers that Adam chooses death over the future that she has made for him, the future to which she had propelled him. On her return to the flat that she shares with her estranged husband, Jack, Fiona enters into the same unstructured distance that opens between Gabriel and Greta at the end of the dead. As Gabriel feels a close to his closeness to his wife on their return to their hotel room at the end of the evening, as he is overcome, as he puts it, by his clownish lust for her. So Jack, Fiona's wife, expects a reconciliation with Fiona after her triumphant recital of Bach. He is, we learn, in an elevated state, excited by her performance and by what he thought lay ahead. But rather than sex, which might make everything easy between them once more, the evening ends in what Fiona thinks of as a great distance filled by the spectre of Adam, the strange and beautiful young man who had died for love of her. The novel closes in semi-darkness with rain rather than snow outside the window as the great rain-cleansed city beyond the room settled to its softer nocturnal rhythms. Fiona and Jack look upon the future of a marriage which will have to accommodate the ghost of a boy who chose, through love, to renounce all of love and life ahead. The effect of this Joycean presence at the close of the novel is modestly magical, endowing the prose with an epiphanal grace that McEwan's style rarely reaches. But of course this magical presence, this peculiar collaboration, is bound up with the contradiction explored both in the dead and in the children act between presence and distance, between the communal and the estranged. In summoning the dead with such intensity, McEwan's novel calls to a moment in the history of the novel at which the very possibility of community and the very possibility that realist fiction can access and sustain such community yields to the perception that communal experience is shadowed by an estrangement, by a statelessness, that it can, cannot overcome. A moment when identity meets what Stephen Dedalus famously called the uncreated conscience of Monterey. The end of the dead produces a new tormented affinity between community and estrangement and suggests the first stirrings of a Joycean modernism that can give expression to such affinity and in doing so produce a model of becoming in time that slips by the nets of narrative sequence. As it's reanimated in the Children Act, it offers a means of reflecting on the questions that drive McEwan's novel, how legal institutions and literary fiction bring the future into contact with the present, present and the past. We can enable the future without predetermining it. The Children Act imagines a relationship between Fiona and Adam that doesn't quite belong to any of the conventions or the forms that structure it. Adam is not the child that Fiona longs for, nor the lover, and she is neither his mother nor his god. Their contact, caught in the short seconds of their kiss, does not have a temporal, theological or juridical form in which to ground itself. 
but it does suggest an encounter between the past and the future, loving, open and undecided, that cannot take place in the realist mode and that resides in the strange semantic shifting that happens in the children at when Dickensian narrative sequence gives way to Joycean ontology, to a dialogue of the past that happens outside of the sequential protocols of storytelling and that summons a different mode of futurity. McEwen's prose summons a modernist forebear in order to gesture towards a future that it is beyond the power of realism to conjure. But his own formal range, as I suspect we all kind of know or believe, remains peculiarly narrow. There is a soft dissolution as the novel moves from its Dickensian opening to its Joycean conclusion that is delicious to the same extent that it's denied by the well-made realism of the narrative. It's in the work of the second person I'm going to turn to, um, Ali Smith, and particularly her recent seasonal cycle, beginning with the novels Autumn and Winter, that one can see an address to the future which is conducted through formal experiment as well as through a history of a, a historical critique of form. Many of us have read the autumn-winter cycle. In these novels, written at speed under the pressure of the passing moment, as if in real time, Smith seeks to respond to the seismic political upheavals of 2016 and 2017, the Brexit campaign, Trump's election, the murder of Joe Cox, the Grenfell fire, producing an almost overwhelmingly vivid picture of the zeitgeist of a year in which the socio-economic consensus that has held since the Thatcher-Reagan era has been suddenly and bewilderingly dismantled. The novels offer the first developed fictional depiction of the fever that has gripped the UK since the referendum of 2016, in which, as Smith's narrator puts it, all across the country there was misery and rejoicing. All across the country people looked up Google, what is EU? <laughs> all across the country people looked up Google, moved to Scotland. But despite this deep investment in the present, both winter and autumn suggest that to understand our current predicament, the peculiar season in which we're living, we need to see it as part of a logic that's been unfolding in the UK since at least the election of Thatcher in 79. The intense focus on 2016-17 to 17 loops back repeatedly to absorb various histories of our present, which normally, I think, begin with Thatcher. Um, the, the novel uh, quotes several moments of, but, that, from Thatcher's history, but the, the speech from 87 that there's no such thing as society repeatedly recurs. Um, and as we have a, a history of Thatcher to the present, we also have a kind of parallel history uh, of political forms of resistance to Thatcherism that grew up over the same period, um, particularly those associated with the Green and Peace Camp in winter. Uh, so you have a kind of wash and backwash uh, set of uh, political... And Smith's novel depicts a turbulent present of this, this particular year by producing a looping set of histories that locate it and help us to focus it. But what connects Smith's cycle with an almost uncanny insistence to McEwan's dramatisation of the contemporary in the Children Act is that both seek to capture the experience of passing time through an act of ventriloquism which merges the voice of Dickens with that of Joyce. The Children Act begins by quoting the opening of Bleak House. The beginning of autumn 
It was the worst of times. It was the, <laughs> the worst of times. Echoes the famous opening of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And the beginning of winter, God was dead to begin with, opens, uh, echoes the opening of a Christmas carol. Marley was dead to begin with. Um, these opening homages to Dickens then resonate through Smith's novels as Bleak House resonates through the Children Act, so that one can feel a Dickensian presence in every line of Smith's novels, acting as a foundation to the narratives and to the turning of Smith's season. Exploration of revolutionary time in autumn is impelled by Dickens' response to the French Revolution in A Tale of Two Cities, the revolutionary experience that both Dickens and Smith think of as being, quote, recalled to life, that uh, opening of A Tale of Two Cities, that, that phrase comes throughout winter, uh, throughout autumn. And winter is at its heart a story of Christ Christmas redemption that works as a retelling of A Christmas Carol. As in The Children Act, however, the legacy of Dickens is interwoven with an equally powerful fascination and reanimation of joys. The opening sequence of Autumn depicts Daniel Gluck, the ancient guru figure who presides over the novel, being reborn on a strip of beach. And as Gluck experiences this Dickensian recall to life at the beginning of the novel, it's impossible not immediately to feel the presence of Ulysses stirring within the language, kind of bumping against Dickens. With Gluck's first return to consciousness, um, as an old man who washes up on a shore, he's inhabited by the figure of the drowned man who floats off the shore throughout Joyce's novel, the bag of corpse gas sopping foul brine, the corpse rising salt white from the undertow. And as Gluck rejuvenates, as his youthful body grows around him like Adam <coughs> in the children, and as he finds himself, he, he finds himself standing on a st sandy, stony strand, the wind distinctly harsh, and he becomes the young Daedalus walking into eternity along Sandyman Strand. Um, and Daedalus is himself, of course, composed of dead dust of the dead deaths I living breathe. Uh, this is also clothed in the strand entwining cable of all flesh. Ulysses attends Daniel Gluck's narrative birth, and then later in the novel, as Gluck finds himself unrequitedly in love with Pauline Doty, the 60s Britpop artist, one of the novel, novel's guiding figures. It's the dead which offers a framework to Smith's narrative that allows the dead to speak. Gluck stands outside Pauline Doty's house in the rain in the backyard, as Michael Fury stands outside Greta's house in The Dead, as Adam stands outside Fiona's hotel in the rain in The Children Act. And as he does so, Gluck thinks to himself that there is a famous short story, The Dead, by James Joyce, in which a young man stands at the back of the house and sings a song on a freezing night to a woman he loves. Then this young man, pining for the woman, dies. He catches a chill in the snow. He dies young, height of romanticism. That woman in that story for the rest of her life has that young man's song always riddling through her woodworks. Smith, like McEwen, draws on both the realist and a modernist tradition to capture the presence of the past, which is riddled through us, like Woodburn. But where McEwen's stage is a gradual move from the former to the latter, allowing a realist conception of duration to dissolve into the Joycean epiphany with which the children act in. Smith's novel cycle refuses any such linear history of form, offering instead what we feel compelled to call a dizzying blend, 
of ages and styles, crunching together Dickens with Joyce, as well as with a vast range of other influences, voices and images from Barbara Hepworth to Pauline Boating to Elvis in a wonderful passage in the winter to Paddington Bear. Just as the chronological passage from 2016 to 2017, from autumn to winter, is repeatedly disrupted by the appearance of jumbled images and sequences from the past, from Green and Common in 1981, or from Christmas's past, continually interfere with Christmas present in winter. So the shifting influences that shape Smith's narrative are never clearly distinguished from one another, but can felt, be felt jostling against each other in every line. It's as if, for Smith, the experience of this present season, the experience of 2016 to 2017, um, uh, the temporal quality of our own passing moment doesn't have a form in which it might be given shape. The past mingles with the present, one voice mingles with another in a way that defies the protocols of narrative sequence. As Smith's narrator says of Daniel Gluck's regen regeneration, but also I'm sure of the experience of writing the season itself and the, the cycle, here's an old story so new that it's still in the, in the middle of happening, writing itself right now with no knowledge of where or how it will end. Now, I'm drawing to a close. Uh, the sh this shapeless mix of the old and the new, the high and the low, the realist and the modernist, might sound quite familiar. Another restaging of the hybridity of formal styles that we associate with postmodernism. As the aptly known character Art says in Winter, this is a familiarity which could become rather wearisome. It's the dregs, really, he says, to be living in a time when it's mandatory to be post-postmodern consciouser than that. The perennial return of postmodern bricolage might resemble what another character thinks of as the reassuring reappearance of the same Christmas songs every midwinter, which mark, quote, the rhythm of passing time, yes, but also and more so the return of time in its endless and comforting cycle, unquote. If, as the Dickensian opening of winter has it, we're surrounded by the signs, by the signs of cultural as well as ecological death, then this is perhaps because the literary and visual forms with which we've narrated the passing of time, even those postmodern forms which seemed late last century to be so revolutionary, have lost their freshness, have become recycled commodities as tinny and as horribly familiar as the strains of George Michael's Last Christmas. And I'm sorry to say that, because now we're all going to have that in our heads for the rest of the day. God was dead to begin with, the narrator of Winter says, and romance was dead, chivalry was dead. This is, um, if, you, if you go onto Google and you put in romance was, the first option is romance was dead, and, and she's doing this experiment all the way through. Um, chivalry was dead, poetry, the novel, painting, they were all dead, and art was dead, theatre and cinema were both dead, literature was dead, it is actually really depressing to do this. Um, the book was dead, modernism, Postmodernism, realism, and surrealism were all dead. But if Smith's cycle is concerned with recycling, with the deathly return of the old, the shining of every morning sun on Beckett's nothing new, then it's equally invested in the future, in the imperative that we imagine a time to come that hasn't already been seen, that does not belong to cyclical time, but that glimmers on the other side of a seasonal temporal threshold unclothed by any hand-me-down narrative form. Even as her restless investment in the chopped-up histories of narrative form produce a feeling of deja vu, 
a reanimation of the ghosts of modernism and postmodernism and of Dickens, of Joyce. She brings such histories into contact with a futurity, an open narrative horizon that remakes them as old stories are always made new just as they are in the middle of happening. What marks Smith's aesthetic above all, not only in autumn and in winter, but in earlier works such as How to Be Both and The Accidental, is its singular characteristic attention to the ways in which time inhabits material. The forms which allow a temporal con consciousness to act within and to cleave to the bodies and environments in which it recognises itself. In autumn, the narrative explores the process by which Gluck's mind is given rejuvenated form, encased in flesh, or in one of the novel's recurring fantasies, in a body of green wood, a kind of flowering pine. In winter, the fascination with the sculpture of Barbara Hepworth leads to a repeated figuring of the body as stone, and the dwelling inside the body as a dwelling inside stone. <coughs> there is, I think... No other contemporary writer who works with such idiosyncratic precision at the boundary where art meets with its materials, stone or wood or canvas, or where mind meets with uh, material body. When a character in winter reflecting on, quote, mind, matter, the structure of reality, thinks that mind and matter are mysterious and when they come together, bounties, he is stating a credo of Smith's work, a recurrent fascination with meeting that runs through her work at least since a 2007 novel, Girl Meets Boy. Smith, Smith seeks to reveal that junction at which mind meets with matter, at which one person meets with another. And this junction is the place too, fugitive and groundless, the past meets with the future. The seasons may make this meeting point cyclical. They may give a rhythm and a familiarity to the passing of time. And indeed, Smith is deeply attuned to this rhythm and to the gathered mythologies that give a history to the transformative contact of old and new. But even as the turning of the seasons accord to such a rhythm, they also thrust us into a strange flaw in the structure of reality, a suspended space between the gathered past and the empty future, the space, one of the characters in Winter says, that is like two weather fronts meeting, like the coming season getting ready midway through the old one to make itself heard. It's this temporal and material junction, this suspended ground between weather fronts, that Smith seeks to bring to thought and to form in her novel cycle, and that marks the far limit of the novel now in its striving to imagine the future. In reaching to the future, autumn and winter, winter are guided in part by the spirit of Dickens and by the spirits that speak in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's one of the gifts of the realist novel, as it's brought to a particular form of perfection by Dickens, that it gives a shape to passing time and allows us to bring the future into contact with the past. This is the gift too, of course, that's given to Scrooge by the spirits that visit him uh, on Christmas Eve. I will honour Christmas in my heart, Scrooge promises at the end of the novel, is, as he is confronted with the bankruptcy of his own stunted refusal of passing time. I will live in the past, the present and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. It's this capacity to extend oneself in time that Smith is searching for in her novel cycle as we look to bridge the gap between the future and the past, opened by the revolutions of Trumpism and of Brexit. 
Trump declares in 2017 that we're looking now only to the future, that his own revolution requires us to reject the past. Smith's novels offer a direct rebuke to this address to the future. We need now, like Scrooge, to feel both the future and the past striving within us. Only by working with both imperatives can we see past the current crisis in the passage of world history. But if this is so, what Smith's cycle suggests, what the British novel now suggests, perhaps, is that we need a new model and a new mechanism with which to address the turning of the seasons, the passage from shared past to unknown future, from adult to child. Smith takes Theresa May's recent declaration that if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, as an epigram to winter, and it's difficult to resist the feeling that all of that novel's energies are directed against this sentiment. There must be, Smith's novel suggests, ways of extending citizenship across the globe, progressive ways of imagining shared worlds. Smith's aesthetics are directed by this urge towards citizenry, towards shared worlds. She also counterintuitively counterpolitically shares something of May's sentiment here. It may be that to be a citizen of the world now, we need also to be a citizen of nowhere, the no place that has haunted the novel's utopian imagination since Thomas More's 1516 work, Utopia. Scrooge feels past, present and future striving within him, and Dickens crafts the form that resolves such striving into sequence. Smith, however, suggests that it's necessary now for us to give expression not only to accommodations between past and future, but also to gulfs between them, gulfs that can only be experienced as a kind of nowhere, a wasteland between a shared past and a future that may grow out of our collective past which does not belong to it or follow from it. It's this attention to a communal nowhere that lies between generations, between the past and the future, that makes Smith's novel cycle so timely, so attuned to the state of the novel now. The book was dead, Smith's narrator thinks. Modernism, postmodernism, realism, surrealism were all dead. This may be so, it may be the case that the passage from realism to, modern, to modernism to postmodernism that is reanimated in McCune and in Smith has led us to a post-millennial wasteland, a stony ground in which no roots clutch and no branches grow, and to which we can offer only a heap of broken images. But for Smith and for McEwen and for a generation of novelists working now at a transitional moment in the passage of our history, it's only by clearing such a passage, by imagining what it would be to be a citizen of nowhere, that we can craft the forms in which we can look to the future while feeling our shared past strive within us.